I could see very up close and personal how our place and the way that we treated people and the choices that we made, even physically within the rooms and the public spaces, how they made people feel. And we got that feedback right away, even as young kids. Hello, and welcome to The Modern Hotel. You're presented by Stay Flexi, your all-in-one modern operating system for independent hotels. Each episode, we'll get to know an industry expert, and we'll discuss the latest trends in hospitality to help you, The Modern Hotelier. Welcome to The Modern Hotelier, presented by Stay Flexi. I'm your host, David Malilli. And I'm Steve Karen. Steve, who do we have on today? Yeah, David, today we have on Sarah Eustace, the founder and CEO of Main Street Hospitality. Before founding Main Street, Sarah was in leadership roles on the retail side of things working on operations, marketing, design, and development for brands like Ralph Lauren, Gap, and Limited Brands. Main Street Hospitality now operates 12 hotels in Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and New York. Welcome to the show, Sarah. We're excited to have you on. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Absolutely. Absolutely. The, f- the format here, we have uh, really three sections. We're going to first ask you some questions to get to know you a little bit better and talk about your career. And then we're going to just ask for some inputs uh, on the, f- the state of the industry and what the current trends are going on. Okay. So we're going to start off, dive right in. What was your first job in hospitality? My first job in hospitality. Well, my first job in hospitality remains the, the most important job in hospitality, which is housekeeping. So I started when I was 14, and that was here at the Red Lion Inn in our family's hotel. And it was the beginning of a incredible training that I got working pretty much every job in the place, maybe except for facilities maintenance, (laughs) although I did a little of that probably on the side too. But we and my children are now doing the same thing. So my first job was in housekeeping. And it was where I learned the sort of the backbone of the operation. Great. So today, if you weren't in hospitality, what, what field do you think you'd be in? What, what would you be doing? Oh, goodness. Well, it's, it's conceivable that I might still be in the retail apparel business. You can call it the fashion business if you want, but it was not as glamorous as everybody thinks. And um, was incredibly satisfying career and, and took me to a lot of amazing places and I worked with incredible people and brands, but there was a moment where it felt like hospitality was maybe the new horizon that I wanted to 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 tackle. But I think if if that moment hadn't come, uh, guys, I might still be living in Paris, you know, which might be. (laughs) Don't get me don't get me going on that, please. (laughs) So I I keep asking this on the podcast, and everybody says there's hundreds, but. Give me one. What's the one of the weirdest things you've seen in a hotel? God, I think it was pe- the people who came for the summer and brought eight cats with them. <laughs> and we allowed them to bring the eight wow. cats. And it was just, you know, I mean, today that would probably not ha- ever happen. But right. And I was the housekeeper in that, in that room. <laughs> Did you update the pet policy after that? We did. Yeah, that was we that did. was the uh, <laughs> that was the beginning of it. So, who did you who did you admire growing up? You know, it's interesting. My I had two grandmothers on both sides who were amazing female pioneers. One in medicine, and the other in business, and both of them way before their time, and were were doing things and and manifesting sort of results and careers and 
having an impact in a way that perhaps wasn't traditional for women at that time. And both of them just remarkable. And I, I think that that I am who I am. I have amazing mothers as well, a mother and a stepmother who are incredible and creative. But I think the pioneering aspect of what my both my grandmothers did was really probably the most inspiring for me growing up. What's the best piece of advice you've received? God, David, these are hard questions. You know, I, I, I think it was during my time at Limited where I, I had a lot of responsibility. I was working in New York City and uh, just took on a new role within the Limited where I was for 10 years and moved into another division that we were planning to try to improve and turn around. And I got the resignation letter of someone who was on the team. I'd been there like a couple of weeks. I think I was trying to put my mark on things. And he came to me and he said, you know, I don't think this is for me. I, I think I'm going to resign. I'm a very creative guy. And I kind of said, oh, well, okay. You know, I'm building a new team. So, okay. And then later that evening, I had a call with a woman who was the head of the division at the time who counseled me and said, just sleep on it. Just breathe through. Don't accept his resignation so fast. You need this team and you need this person, maybe even just for a phase. And I did, and I slept on it, and I came back to him the next day, and he ended up staying with me for five years, and he was amazing, right? So the, the, the moral of the story is managing reaction, not overreacting, recognizing as a leader that you can stop and breathe and not necessarily make a decision at that very second in a, in a reactive way. So I use that a lot. I say, let me think about it. I'll get back to you. <laughs> <laughs> if you could trade places with someone for a day, who would it be? Let's see. Huh. That's interesting. You know, I might trade places with Danny Meyer for a day. <laughs> I know him. He's a friend. I feel privileged to call him a friend. But I'd like to know what it feels like when you've built your company through, through a strong philosophy and ethos. But when you've built it to that scale, what it feels like at that scale and how you feel as a leader. So I'd love to I'd love to step in his shoes for a day if I could. What's a secret talent that you have that nobody knows about? Oh my goodness. Let's There's see. So many to choose well, from. Well, no, I don't want to. <laughs> I'm not that talented. I, I just I guess I, I have sometimes it's not and it's not like something practical like making a great souffle or something, which I wish I could. And maybe it was because it was growing up in this interesting family, but I have I can read the room. Like I, right. I have a little bit of a sixth sense about the room and that helps me maybe i shouldn't give it away <laughs> but no yeah it's not really a secret but it, it is something that i sometimes it's painful because i can see a car crash before it's going to happen oh, no. <laughs> between two yeah, people how, looking so far and i'm like i'm like oh no stop stop talking stop talking <laughs> so our first guest was anthony malcuri who's uh, a good friend of mine and, and he is he can read the room and then he can read a person in Two two minutes. He'll walk. He'll, if he walks away, he'll he'll tell me something. And uh, he's actually predicted things. He's met people that I've worked with, and then he's told me what was going to happen just by meeting them in like an elevator by random. He's like, oh, "I met so and so works at your company," and he'll be like, dun, 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 dun. and I'm like, "We're going to happen." And then like six months later, I'm like, "Hey, Anthony, guess what? Yeah, dun, 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 dun. Oh all those things God. happen." So. Well, I don't know how my good my predictive skills are, and I've certainly right. made plenty of great hires and not great hires in my, in my career, but more in the moment, trying to help people find consensus and like get us right. to a good place. And 
I, I use my special secret sauce for that. <laughs> what scared? What scares you? Ah, oh, let's see. Well, I thought you know going out of business might have scared me before COVID, but now I'm not even scared of that. <laughs> right. I don't. Awesome. I don't want it to happen. But I don't live. I don't I fear. I feel grateful that for whatever my makeup. I don't spend a lot of time in in fear. Healthy, healthy pragmatism and certainly understanding the risks of what it is that we do. I guess what scares me most is the really the safety and well-being of my of our people, right? So hotels are are open, living, breathing places. The door, literally, the door has never been locked on the front of the Red Lion Inn. Anything could happen at any time. And I think we have a healthy fear about that and the safety of our people. And that's that's what keeps me up is just making sure that we have measures in place to prevent bad things from happening. <laughs> so, and they haven't, thank God, it, knock on wood. That's good. One way to prevent them is have like eight cats in the lobby or something well, I like know. that. <laughs> like guard cats. <laughs> Oh yeah, exactly. exactly. Yes, exactly. Exactly, Steve. If you could pick one superpower, what would it be? If I could pick one superpower. So a lot of people say predicting the future, but I don't want that. <laughs> I don't want to know. Right. I don't want to know. Yeah. I don't know. I think doing all my email correspondence in, in my sleep would be a superpower. <laughs> so that while I'm sleeping, it all gets done. And then in the morning, I wake up and I can, I can think again. That's pretty good. I'm not like trying those. to be. I'm not trying to be yeah, cheeky. Yeah, that is a good. Wouldn't one. that be a good one? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's one of the best ones I think we've heard. That was yeah. that was great. That was great. I would love that one too. Yeah, we, we've, we've had invisible well, and other things like that. So it's uh, that, that that's the most unique we've gotten so far. Oh, okay. <laughs> that was really good. I just made that, that up. I don't know where that came from. Well, I like it. I like it. Well, now I, you know, now Sarah, I appreciate you, you know, answering those quick questions. Want to learn a little bit more about you at this at this kind of part of the podcast. Where did you grow up? I grew up just outside of Philadelphia. Um, okay. But because my, my father moved up here to the Berkshires when I was quite young, really sort of half my life was spent up here in the summer and, and any vacation that we had. So it was really Philadelphia Berkshires, I would say. Which, which area? I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm, I'm from Doylestown, Pennsylvania. So there you go. So, yeah, I grew up in in Gladwin, kind of on the border of Gladwin and Haverford, right? And, you know, beautiful mainline. Yeah. Yeah. So Awesome. How did that shape you kind of growing outside of Philadelphia? And obviously, you spent a lot of time where you currently are now. Mm -hmm. Obviously, that played a a role into maybe falling in love with the area. But how did that kind of shape you as who you are today? Well, you know, I, I got myself to the city as soon as I could. So I do love the energy and the inspiration that comes from living in a city which I did for many years in New York and San Francisco, Paris, and so forth. But growing up, it was you know somewhat rural in Gladwin where we lived, definitely country setting where we are now. And I think it's a great place to start your life and maybe a great place to yeah. kind of come later in life with a, a heavy-duty, intense city chapter in the middle. So I feel it, it just kind of happened that way. And Philadelphia is a place that I love. I, I didn't wasn't drawn back to live there full time because I was so so connected to to the life in New York. But it was it was a remarkable place to grow up, David. I think you can relate to that. A lot of traditions, a lot of history, and a way of life that you know is very kind of a little more structured. And the Berkshires that when I was growing up were a little more hippie seventies, so it provided a nice balance. I always look at it as. 
there's really something to grow up somewhere where there's seasons where it changes. Like I, I'm in Phoenix now, but I can never imagine having grown up here. I just, you know, I think there's just something about growing up and going through the, the anticipation of, you know, the fall coming up or spring going in the summer and those things. So I always thought the, yeah, the, the, the seasons always had something to do with it. Totally. And I lived in San Francisco for a couple of years, which I loved, but I knew I could not live there my whole life. Right. Great people, amazing place, but there just wasn't enough. You're right. There wasn't enough evolution for kind of right. change of change of of season and point of view. So. Absolutely, absolutely. So you mentioned your first job in hospitality was a housekeeper yes. at the Red Lion Inn, right? Mm-hmm. Did did you guys have a nickname for the housekeepers there, or was there a nickname people called them? We um, yes, we were called the Candy Stripers. Why is that? Because we had to wear <laughs> ridiculous uniforms. Which at the time, now looking back, they were kind of cute, but they were pinafores with uh-huh. red and white stripes on them. And awesome. my best friend, still my best friend, and I started on the third floor and we were we were candy stripers. Kind of like volunteers at the hospital used to be called that. But we were we were candy stripers and it was again, it was a privilege and it was fun and it was sort of the summer scene at the Red yeah. Lion. So Absolutely. And you worked there with your best friend, right? Yeah. Yeah. How how did that kind of establish a base for your kind of hospitality career? I feel like that's a great position to just get thrown into and learn how hotels run in general. So yeah. can you ex- explain a little bit kind of how that set the groundwork for your career moving forward? Well, it's interesting because I think, you know, so much of what happens to you early in life and, you know, in adolescence and teenagehood, it's 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 happening to you. It's sort of more subconscious. It's not strategic per se. So understanding, first of all, the fundamentals of showing up to work (laughs) beyond hospitality, even kind of showing up on time, being part of a team, managing priorities, understanding how your work impacts other people, right? And that was just sort of a great fundamental building block for being a professional. Then from a hospitality specific standpoint, I, I could see very up close and personal how our place and the way that we treated people and the way that we, the choices that we made, even physically within the rooms and the public spaces, how they made people feel. And we got that feedback right away, even as young kids. And so this notion that what I do impacts the way people feel, what I do impacts how people feel about the value of what they got, the way that I greet them impacts their experience. That was embedded in, in us from a very, very young age. And it just, it's been there the whole time. And I took it, you know, I took it to retail and then I got a lot from retail and then brought it back to hospitality because the two are very connected. Absolutely. So you went to Smith's college, you played field hockey and lacrosse. I do you have a favorite moment uh, from athletics? You guys are covering the map here. Yes. Well, let's see at Smith, you know, I found myself in a leadership position. I mean, I don't, I don't know why or how, but I ended up being yeah. captain. And one year, I remember it was the first year, I think it was my sophomore year. You know, we had, we were, we were good, but we were always, you know, Wellesley and Williams. And we just, we, we couldn't keep up with those teams. But I remember specifically in our sophomore year, we beat both of them. And I think it wasn't, it was just because, I don't know, we somehow we had, unlocked something not to be corny with sports metaphors but we had unlocked something as a team that was really exciting and i just remember that was a 
particularly thrilling victory. Um, those Wellesley girls, you know, how they can be. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and the Williams and Williams people, you know, they just think they're just always unbeatable. So it was great. So as you can see, we're, we're trying to dive deep into you. So you majored in fine art and art history. Yes. Any connections there and, and, and going back to hospitality and, and kind of what you're doing today? Sure. Well, listen, I, I grew up, both my parents are, my mother passed away a few years ago, but she was a concert pianist. My father is 87 and going strong and he's an architect, both highly tuned creative people. So art and music was a big part of my life. And I guess I thought I was always going to be a fashion designer. I thought I would go to design school. And I ended up at Smith with, with a more of a, a liberal arts approach, which I'm glad I did. But in so doing, I focused on, on fine art, so active studio work and, and art history, which I use all the time, actually, because it, it had everything to do with light and spaces and colors and texture and all the things that I'm still doing all the time when we're creating hotel rooms or a beautiful lobby. And I, I think, you know, my, my father worked in Philadelphia for Louis Kahn, who was an incredibly famous architect and the icon of his time. And he, a lot of my inspiration still, I revert back to him about how the concept is developed for a building, how it moves through the, the sort of measurable period and then back sort of into the immeasurable because it takes on kind of a soul. So, you know, art, architecture, and all of that just felt like a natural. And I'm just, I happen to be the most practical person in my family, the only one who's ever worked for anyone else <laughs> and wasn't a practicing artist. So I, I'm very conventional that way. I like to have a paycheck, but, and I'm not as talented as they are. So. Oh. <laughs> So after college, you kind of did you use kind of that that inspiration? Your family's very art art into art and music, and then you went into retail, mm -hmm. right? Is that kind of what chose that helped you make that decision, or what was the the reasoning for going into the retail side of things after college? I, you know, again, I just I don't know when it was, but I had decided that fashion design was going to be yeah. my thing, and independent of anybody, you know, kind of suggesting it to me. And I tried to take sort of practical fashion classes at Smith and it didn't, it didn't quite, it didn't quite fly for my, my, my advisor, but I, I, I dove in right after college and, and tried to get all the practical training I could. And again, I think it's an extension of the artistic blood running, running in the family. But again, I, I guess I threw out these different chapters in my career. And I think also having very creative, but also very practical people in my family gave me a bit of a balance. And maybe that's my secret sauce, David, that I mentioned earlier, which is yeah. being able to translate between creative people and business people, because oftentimes they do not understand each other. That's difficult. And we yeah. waste a lot of time and money sometimes on the that lack of understanding. And so this crazy family, and then also in my fashion career, I found myself often in a, at a table translating the creative vision to the business people right. in a way that would enable them to get on board and vice versa. Does that make sense? Kind of a yeah. bilingual, bilingual kind of role. Percent. That's great. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And then after, after retail in 2012, you came back to Redline and 2013 started 
Main Street Hospitality. How did that come to be? That had to be pretty exciting, kind of coming back to your to your roots where you first started in hospitality. Yeah. How'd that happen? Well, it was it was um I think a combination of 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 the universe sort of telling you what should happen if you're listening. Sure. And and a, and a sequence of events. So we were living in Paris at the time. Um I actually I actually you guys are gonna think of kind of anyway, I don't know. I'll throw it out there. When I there was a I had an epiphany at one point when I was yeah. driving up to the Berkshires from New York City. And I said, you know, I think by the time I'm fifty, I probably will be up here doing something with the family business. It just hit me. I'm like, and I don't remember exactly yeah. how old I was at that time in my forties. And I just thought I don't I don't know why. It just hit me. So then we went about our business. We moved to Paris and my grandfather passed away in 2010 and we came back for the service with our, with our two boys. And I remember sitting at the service honoring him and there were a lot of people there and looking around at my family and looking around at the sort of, um, I guess what had been created by the first and second generations. I mean, listen, small pond guys, really small, but nonetheless, we'd created some good things that that deserve to be stewarded into the future. And I kind of looked around, I have amazing brothers, you know, one of them's in Colorado, one of them's in the Dominican, one of them, you know, was doing his own thing. And I said, gosh, not sure who's, if anybody's going to step up in the third generation. And the second generation was sort of getting ready to maybe think about relaxing and doing other things. So sure. it just kind of hit me, like maybe it's time for us to think about this because there was a lot of good material to work with and main right. street is what I hope is the sort of reconstitution of a lot of that good material. So right. I convinced my husband to, to leave Paris after our, my, I had a contract there that had was coming to a close and um, we thought about going back to New York and kind of scrambling up the fashion ladder again. And we just thought, you know what, it might be time to take our collective energy professionally and and um give this a shot so we did i love that yeah it was it was a little bit of a leap but we don't regret so awesome. we don't regret it for oh, a second that's a yeah. great story so going from retail to hospitality and you look at kind of the executives are there any similarities in the type of people or do you feel other than yourself obviously you've made the a smooth transition but any similarities in that world and yeah i think there are a lot of similarities david and I guess what, what was interesting specifically to my journey, which is what, it, is, is what it was, what I realized reflecting, not until I came back to this business did I realize that each of the brands and the, the big companies that I worked for, Ralph Lauren, Gap Inc., limited brands, and Itam in France, they were all family businesses. Mm. I know, right? It didn't really, yeah. I didn't even realize it while it was going on. Which meant to me that the the founder of each of those companies showed up every day at the office and would talk about Absolutely. right. Ralph was there. Les Wexner showed yeah. up every. I mean, yeah. not that that's so unusual, maybe, but they would talk about why, it, where the business started, and why it was important. And and that I felt very grounding in terms of working in a culture. In terms of retail. I worked with some amazing people. You know, at the time when I was at Gap Inc., it was becoming more a little more academic. You know, there were Harvard Bus there were Harvard Business School people everywhere. <laughs> there were there were BCG <laughs> consultants everywhere at Limited. 
But I liked that. I thought it was it was becoming a bit more academic, balancing the creative, right? And I think that that honestly, the the translation of what 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 we were there to do, which is to create a great product in line with a coherent story, price it correctly, create a good value, create an environment that people can enjoy your product, smile at them when they come in the door, and you know all those things that are that are the same in hospitality, right? To your question about the leaders in those businesses, I think they were they they had the same mission and they were they had a lot of the same characteristics. I, I, I think because we were welcoming people into our stores and into the life of the brand, and we were doing it a thousand times over. You know, we had huge huge um, retail programs. So I, I think there's a huge translation, and there there are a lot of a lot of great people who I learned from and brought that back to hospitality. And it seems like it just kind of with uh, Main Street's, I, I don't know if it's their mission statement or some, what, what you want to call it, but it says that Main Street's driving purpose is to create places that enable people to connect in meaningful ways. How do you do that? <laughs> well, it's a very good question. And we talk about it all the time. So connection is a very broad word, right? And I think maybe even more pertinent given what we've all been through the last few years, human connection, something we used to take for granted, right? We have a lot of, you know, we're connected on a lot of devices and we're over, we're over connected and we're also very disconnected as, as people um, in a lot of ways. So hotels and, and the kinds of hotels that we love to create and steward foster connection in a number of ways. One, the sort of warmth and genuineness that you get from our people, whether it's the first call on the phone or arriving, a feeling of, I see you, you belong here, and I value you, right? Which we, we train for, and we, we send that message in a lot of different ways. Then the, the actual environment, you know, you can walk into a room, think about it, and it can feel very overlit, and the spacing of the furniture can be all wrong, and it can make you not feel drawn to stay there and to sit next to someone and have a drink and, and talk and converse and maybe meet someone new. So when we think about lobby design and, and the way and dining spaces, we really think about how are we building connections? Why do people want to stay? Another very practical way is, you know, throughout the experience of being with us, how we build connections to the place for any guest, you know, through really personalizing their their stay through letting them know that we can we can find things that make sense for them as opposed to just fitting fitting a bill. So people can connect in unmeaningful ways too, but we like the, we like <laughs> to drive meaning meaningful connection not only because it feels good, but because it makes people come back and it helps with our sustainability, right? If you have if you have a transactional experience somewhere, you know it and you feel it. And you don't, it doesn't really make mm-hmm. you say, oh my God, that guy behind the front desk was so, he connected with me so deeply that I just, I want to, I can't wait to go back. Does that make Absolutely. sense? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I was going to, my next question is what, what can I expect when I come <laughs> to one of your properties? But you just answered it. So I don't need to ask that. <laughs> so David, I'll let you go. That was a good, that was a very good explanation. So when you're looking for a location, is there a particular type of location you're looking for as you expand? And also if you are, do you have any new properties? coming up soon. We do. 
So, so we, again, we are not, and I just was at, I just was at a conference and I was uh, sitting with my friend Rami who founded and owns Lifehouse. And it was fun to exchange with him, you know, how he's building his business and what their strategy is and how it's unique from ours. And, and what I love to do is collaborate with people in the industry. I, I think there's room for everybody. I really do. And we're, we're trying to do something a bit, a bit unique. So we do not have a, a brand rollout plan, at least not today. We're looking for unique locations where the kinds of hotels that we do would really make sense, whether they already exist and they deserve to be transformed or whether there's a, there's a market that really is yearning for something like this. So the, the, the exciting thing, what I feel very proud of is the evolution of our portfolio, which I'd love to say it's been really strategic, but it hasn't. It's been about relationships. It's been about kind of finding great markets like, like Rhode Island came about because we formed a relationship with Peregrine, who are incredible development partners, and they invited us to Newport. And then our friends in Providence saw that we were involved in Newport and they said, what about coming up here? So it's, it's been, the growth has been organic. And I guess I would say that what's nice now is that we have a fairly, considering we still have a relatively small portfolio. We're diversifying. So we've got sort of entry point affordable design hotels. We've got a great group in the iconic boutique kind of upscale, I hate that word, but you know what I mean, space. And then our newest property, which I'm excited to tell you about, will open in July. And it is, it's called the Canoe Place Inn. And it's in Hampton Bays, New York. And it's going to be a really, it's going to be a remarkable property and without a doubt a luxury property again that word is overused but it will be in that price point in that quality level so affords us now we're playing in all these different spaces are we are we looking for interesting coastal locations because we can use the tuition that we paid in newport sure are we looking for cool emerging secondary tertiary cities in downtowns because we've paid the tuition and we know how to do that. Are we looking for relationships with institutions, academic or art institutions, because we believe hospitality can really be meaningful when it's done in harmony with those kinds of institutions. So we, we are looking at all of those kinds of pockets, but the projects have to, they have to pass through a, a pretty rigorous filter now to, to make it to the slate. So anyway, yeah, that's how I would answer that question. Awesome. As CEO right now, what's the, what's the biggest problem you're tackling right now? Well, it's, um, it's not going to sound, well, you know what? I'll, I'll, I was going to answer it one way and now I've changed my mind midstream right now. I would say it is the journey to, to scale and the definition of scale and what that looks like. And I mentioned Danny Meyer, who, again, I have the privilege of, of knowing and getting to, chat with every once in a while. And in the book that he wrote called Setting the Table, a lot of it was about, you know, he had one incredible restaurant that everybody just loved deeply. And then he decided to open another one. And as soon as you take what it is you're trying to do and you, and you, and you take it more horizontal, less vertical, you, you face the issues of scale, meaning how can I be sure that our identity and our value system translates correctly to a bigger portfolio? How can I be sure 
that the systems and the infrastructure and the people we have in place can take on two, three, four more hotels? How do I ensure that the bottom line of the company actually makes sense (laughs) so that we, I mean, (laughs) you know, basics. So these are the things that I find exciting, Steve, they're, and they're just, they're ongoing, but they are the things that occupy most of my time, right? And trying to do them in, in some kind of balanced way, which mm-hmm. is very difficult, but we're, we're getting to that. We're actually getting to liftoff, which is pretty exciting. I know I always say that like That's it's awesome. right around the corner, but I think it might, <laughs> we might actually be getting the hang of this. And you mentioned earlier that you're the only one in your family that has worked for somebody. Everybody else kind of has done their own entrepreneurial thing. Was there a moment that kind of clicked for you that's like, I'm good at this. I am good (laughs) at being a CEO. This is what I'm meant to do. And that's, was there a moment like that? That's a really nice question. I I should be fair to my family. I mean, my brother, one of my brothers was in the Peace Corps for a bunch of years. (laughs) If they hear this, they're going to be mad at me. All I would say is that they haven't had traditional corporate jobs. Let's put it that way. Fair enough. That being said, you know what? That's a really great question. And I really appreciate it because there are many years in the entrepreneurial coming out of corporate where I, I thought I'd gotten to a point where I was pretty good at that, navigating big companies, yeah. understanding how to lead teams, you know, moving, you know, ex- when I was at Express, I mean, it was a billion dollar company and I yeah. was able to affect change inside a billion dollar company. And I was pretty proud of that. And then it was like a humbling, you know, entrepreneurial smackdown of, of literally just trying to figure out how to create something and make sure the bills got paid. Right. So very yeah. different, took a huge you know lifestyle change to do it. And so I had to really have a feeling that I could be successful at this. And probably the thing that I knew early on, and I, I wasted no time in surrounding myself with people who were much smarter than I was, or at least had more hospitality experience than I did, right? Because being a housekeeper, as great as it is, it's not 20 years of Starwood. <laughs> you know, like it doesn't get you right. that right. sort of strategic side. So I started building slowly but surely people around me who, who could help. I guess I could see the vision. I could see where it was going. Mm-hmm. And I needed, I needed people to help me kind of row the boat to get there. Right. And, and I would say, and I've made so many mistakes and just, Un- unknown errors until until you know that it's an error, right? But I would say coming into the pandemic, shutting down the business for three months, holding the team together, figuring out how people got paid or not paid, getting down to the studs on like what was important to us and what is our what is our mission really mm-hmm. and who really are our partners because you see the the best and the worst in people during that time. And I would say halfway through maybe a couple months into COVID, I thought, you know what? I think, I think I'm actually pretty good at this because, because we didn't fall down. Right. Yeah. I was terrified every day and there was lots of cocktails having every night (laughs) just to take the edge off. (laughs) But, but now I have, and and so many of the people are still with me and we had to make some changes and that was actually healthy. But I think that's, I think the last few years have made me realize like, this is what I want to do. And I think I'm actually pretty good at it. Thanks for sharing. That's painful as it was. (laughs) That's great. So have you ever had a mentor that that you've had throughout your career? Oh, certainly. I've had, I've had quite a few, but one in particular who uh, I would always kind of revert to him. It was during, during my time at at, um, Gap Inc and Banana Republic specifically. Mm -hmm. 
And he was had had been part of the creative team and then came out to San Francisco to be part of the, the buying team or the, the business team. And I was a young professional coming up in my career. And he really, you know, he just and then he invited me to come back to limited brands, which is why I why I did that. And then was there for 10 years, mm-hmm. mostly with him, not always arm and not always arm and arm, sometimes in different divisions, but sure. he 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 just kind of taught me about prioritizing and sort of about urgency and like figuring out what's important in that moment, which I think is such a sometimes a lacking skill. And the one thing I remember he did with us as we were being promoted and going to different divisions in the company was he made us go through presentation skills class. Like he got us a coach for like six months. Oh, it was, it was terrible. (laughs) It was practicing and videoing yourself and listening to your president. I mean, but I will tell you, and I'm not great at it necessarily today, but it was the best training I've ever had about how to just I believe simply that. how to express your ideas and how to be convincing yeah. and how to get them, get people on board with them, you know? But he, he was just a great, he was a great mentor. He went on to run Burberry in London and he's, he's just an incredible professional. So yeah. Awesome. So with, the, with all the industries you've been in, do you believe there's one common trait that the successful people you've worked with have? It's a really good question. And I'm giving it due, due, due thought because I don't want to answer too hastily. Um, and success is so, you know, it's so subjective. Right. Yeah. But I think a healthy degree of humility right. is, is a trait. And that can come along with big ego too. I've, what I've really learned is that you can have a really strong ego because you're a confident person and you have a vision. But I think a fundamental humility around knowing you're not always the smartest person in the room and that that you want to surround yourself with with talented people and get the best out of them. I've seen that now. I mean, Ralph Lauren is like that. You know, he one of the most successful guys on the planet. It, it just, it's not, I think there's a fundamental humility that enables people to build great cultures and great companies. It's not about pure power. I just, I've right. seen that. I've seen that too. And oh, I've yeah, seen it. Too. I've seen it crash and burn. <laughs> really? Yep, me too. So <laughs> I wish I could name names, but I can't. <laughs> we know, nope, David. No, no, no. But we know who we are. We know who they are. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, so now the last section. You're almost out of here. <laughs> so one one thing for you here. What would you you know if I'm just starting out at hospitality right now? I'm applying for my first job, just getting in, what's some advice you would give me? Well, it, it's sort of nuanced because, you know, there are my husband, my husband, my son, for example, is at UMass Eisenberg as we speak. And he's mm-hmm. interested in going into the management school and he's in the management school for hospitality. So he, and he works in the business and he's trained on the floor and he's done all the things that I've done. I might give him different advice than, than someone who's coming in to, to a different role. But I think the advice would be whether you're coming out of Cornell or a big fancy school or whatever, is really cross-training yourself. You know, whether it's through a program or whether it's as part of your first job or just asking for it. And really, I, I think the most successful people in this business have stood in everybody's shoes, or at least most, right? Like we just, we, we, I'm, I'm pleased to announce, and I think I can say, you know, we have a new vice president of operations who's coming on in about a month. His name is wow. Joe. You Joe, heard it here first. Modern hotelier. Joe Crimmins. <laughs> Breaking news. <laughs> Joe Crimmins is joining our team and he's an p- incredible professional. And we talked about this a lot during the interview process that 
his, you know, the, the, the success in hospitality, no matter what avenue you take, because there are so many great avenues. But the more in your early career, I would say, don't get stuck in one lane, even if you think you want to do hospitality marketing, or you think you want to be a food and beverage director, push yourself to try at least even for short periods of time, everything else, because then you understand the synergy of the operation. And you'll just be better at your job and you'll have more That's credibility awesome. with people. Yeah, my one company I used to I used to have interdepartmental lunches. So I used to make the developers and the support people and salespeople like different have random people have lunch together because they never talk to each other. It's a great yeah. Um yeah. you know, the funniest story is about a developer and I asked her, I said, So we're at lunch, Irina, what's your favorite food? And she said, Potato. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like potato. <laughs> but it was just interesting and people now. And yeah. they start to get, the, they know each other when they're walking past each other, you know, to go to the restroom or go somewhere, the communication, but, um, absolutely. So right now when you're on LinkedIn, we're all on LinkedIn, but you know, there's so much about COVID and labor shortages. What, what is something we should be talking about that we're not outside of those two topics? It seems like they kind of dominate from, I know. And I, I don't know if I have anything original to say on that particular note, but COVID is Again, it is something that just, there should just, we just, we made the playbook. We understand more than ever about these kinds of things. And especially in a hospitality environment, how they can be managed. So all I would say COVID is, thank God we've been through it most, almost mostly now. And so we can be even more effective if we have to deal with different versions of things, that's all I'm going to say on that. I mean, we are so much smarter, right. sure. so much stronger and not afraid, you know, as we might've been of the unknown and whatever. I, I don't think that we're finding that people are really ready to get back to just normal hospitality kinds of operations. And, you know, we still have QR codes around from place to place. And we still have some hand sanitizer in the rooms. And we're still very respectful and, and, and understanding of nothing is taken lightly, shall I say, but we, we, the, the desire to get back to real human connection and real hospitality has been overwhelming on, on the, on the labor side. Again, I, I don't, I don't know what I can add that is so original, except to say right. that all of us and, and Danny and I talked about this on a conference, a, a panel at ILC in Miami a couple of months ago that it is now, if, if this has taught us anything, especially in hospitality, you know, the focus on our culture, on really putting our money where our mouth is in terms of having people feel heard and held when they work for us, whether they're washing dishes or whether they're running accounting. And as nice as that sounds, I'm actually seeing it in practice because people are sticking, I don't have stats, for us in terms of our retention, sure. but we're, we're doing okay. And we have an, a remarkable number of people who are joining us, staying with us, growing with us. And last week we had three promotions within the company. It was amazing. So to watch people move and build their careers. The other thing I was so proud of is the, the Boston Celtics came after my front desk manager and wow. offered her an incredible job. And she, wow really thought hard and long about it and someday who knows she may end up with the nba but you know right. what she she stayed because wow. she sees the opportunity for her and i thought that was a big win and no pressure i mean listen people gotta fly Huge. if they gotta fly they gotta fly but i i don't and it's not like we're doing anything magic except showing people how 
yes, we have great benefits. Yes, we're paying people correctly. But there's something about this family of properties and the family of people that people are enjoying and they're seeing it as a as a viable, really great chapter in their in their careers. And we've got some people right in the in the sweet spots of their careers. So I I, I think the only thing we can do to respond to that, David, is to be better. There is no excuse. Literally, make sure HR is really functioning well. Make sure everybody is is in recruiting. Everyone's in recruiting, right? Throw out the old traditional assumptions about why people want to work and and what will what will attract them to you. Continuing to say, oh, we can't get people, we can't get people. I'm not sure I buy it anymore. It's true. Sure. I mean, there is a vast shortage of people versus how many jobs are open. I mean, the statistics tell you. But if if you're really having a hard time, then you need to you need to look in the mirror and figure out like what's going on with our organization that we can't keep anybody or get anybody. <laughs> that ILC was a great event too. Steve and I were there, so we missed you. Uh, I'll be at the one coming up in Brooklyn in yeah. June. Yeah, and Andrew. Andrew was our uh, guest. Uh, his isn't, hasn't aired yet. He's next week. That's right. Um, right. But yeah, great, great, great organization. Isn't great it wonderful? People, great events. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, it's, it's so a, great. I always tell people it feels more like it's almost like a membership or a community than a trade show because you kind of mm-hmm. feel like everybody's kind of part of it. Like it's just. I, it's amazing. Know. We had a board meeting at the Soundview and I've been on the advisory board now for five years maybe. And um, it's just an incredible group of people, I got to say. Just thinking, just thinking sort of a little bit differently about hospitality and creatively. And so I feel, I feel privileged to be a part of it. So it's a great group, great group. So one last question here. How, how do you see the future of hospitality with this, with upcoming rise of technology with web three NFTs, the metaverse, all that, how is that going to affect hospitality? Well, again, these are like million dollar questions, but I think, <laughs> if you know the answer, please let me know. And again, it was really cool sitting there with Rami and talking about technology. And Greta, who you know, is really, and our VP of, of finance is, is great too. He's always looking at systems that will just make people's jobs easier. Okay. So from an operation standpoint, we, we are human, we're a human company kind of enabled by tech. We're not leading with tech per se. You're not there. That that's just us, right? But everything's running underneath. From a guest experience standpoint, you know, I really do. And having just, I was just in Vegas at the at the HD conference and being able to communicate with the concierge at any moment and just kind of chat with her and make arrangements. It was fantastic, right? Mm-hmm. So I think yeah. that there are these. And there, there, there are these experience pieces of technology that are that are also making people's lives better and the experience a bit more fluid. Although I, I never think that we're taking people out of the experience of hospitality, at least not in our in our world at Main Street. In terms of next level, right, and and the whole meta aspect of this, I don't know. Maybe people will start staying in virtual hotels. I <laughs> probably maybe we should create one. Yeah, they've already started. Oh, I've yeah. already started doing these yeah. metaverse yeah. hotels. So <laughs> I know. And I find that I find that interesting and, and I, I wanna not be ignorant about it. I have some some members of our advisory board. We have an amazing advisory board for Main Street, one of whom is very much on the forefront of all that. So I I, right. I make him keep us 
I ask him to keep us on it, I guess, in my lifetime, the kind of company that I'm building with my team, it's tactile. It's real. Right. It just it just is. And as long as I'm on this earth, it probably, you know, it will be. Maybe, maybe somebody will take it somewhere sure. else. But, uh, it, you know, we're kind of low tech on the surface, high tech running underneath is kind of our the, the sort of the main street position. I like that. David, anything to anything to wrap up here? Do you think anything anything that we missed that you wanted wanted to talk about? Oh, thank you. Um, my my soapbox. Yeah, you can plug away. You can talk about your property. <laughs> Go ahead. We'll, no, we'll, we'll I, put I the guess, website up and all that good stuff. <laughs> thank you. Well, I guess I might. You know, there are two the two properties that are coming online this year are very Main Street properties, and I guess I would only highlight them because they they both reinforce what it is that that we're about. So Canoe Place Inn, which is opening in Hampton Bays, New York, yeah. is the revival of an iconic place that people have loved for centuries. And we're, we're, we're awesome. privileged to work with this amazing team to breathe new life into it. Like, how great is that, right? So we, and, we, yeah. and, we, and there's all that baggage that we have to unpack and we have to know about it. We have to understand what people expect, right? And how Hampton Bays as a community can be feel good about this and not feel sort of stepped on by some, right. you know, big fancy hotel that plopped into their village. Right. So we're spending a lot of time working on that. Then we're also opening, it's currently open, but we're repositioning hotel down street in North Adams, Massachusetts. And that is also a community that has had an amazing 20 years of evolution with mass mocha, which is this incredible uh, contemporary art museum, as well as another property that we opened 20 years ago called Porches that really changed the dynamic in North Adams. But there's still more to do. And so we've purchased an old Holiday Inn that was the is the center of the city. And it was being underserved. Wow. You know, it was just kind of sitting there. It was okay, but it was not adding any connection or value for the for the the city. So we took the the IHG flag off. We've rebranded it Hotel Down Street. We start renovations soon, probably June. They'll go on for about six months. And then we'll represent this hotel to the community that kind of says, this is a North Adams hotel. It's still affordable. It's got more style. It's got a connection to the art world, a connection to the community, and something that the, the locals can be proud of and also understand, right? So these two properties, different as they are, they're very Main Street. And we just get such satisfaction out of, and we would make some money along the way, but right. we get <laughs> such satisfaction out of doing doing hotels like this. No, and it's great awesome. talking to people like you. I mean, I'm a, when I was managing hotels, they were all independent. So I'm really an independent guy. Yeah. I always feel weird when I stay at a branded property. <laughs> I feel Me like too. I'm cheating. I'm a little allergic. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, but thank you so much, Sarah. It was great talking to you. Uh, that wraps pleasure. up the episode of The Modern Hotelier presented by Stay Flexi. And we appreciate your time and we appreciate you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Sarah. You made it to the end of The Modern Hotelier. Thanks for listening. Make sure to subscribe and follow wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Modern Hotelier is produced by Make More Media and presented by Stay Flexi. Stay Flexi is your modern operating system for independent hotels. If you're interested in learning more about Stay Flexi, you can go to stayflexi.com. Or if you'd rather talk to me instead, feel free to shoot me a message on LinkedIn or email me at steve.karen at stayflexi.com. Thanks and have a great day.